we felt that ESG was becoming so high on CEO's agenda that we needed to get more organized around how to combine the pioneering work we had done on, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, the pioneering work we, we had done with NGOs around social impact, and some of the emerging work we were doing on sustainability across the world. And my job is to coordinate that, and more importantly, scale that to make sure that literally all our teams and all our client conversations include those of ESG. You just heard from our global managing partner, BSG, Francois Faelli, who is joining us today to kick off our exciting new series on ESG. Throughout this series, we'll be spotlighting some of the heavy hitters who lead our ESG efforts while sharing our expertise and touching on the importance of finding bold new ways to make a positive impact for our clients, in our communities, and inside Bain. In this episode, we'll be discussing not only Francois's journey to Bain, but how he became the firm's first global managing partner of ESG, the firm's ESG objectives, and how we've been a pioneer in ESG over the years. Thanks for joining us, Francois. Thank you, Keith. You grew up in Brussels, and uh, I believe pretty close to where you're calling in from right now. Can you talk a little bit about your journey and what you wanted to do when you went away to university? Yeah, my journey geographically is not very spectacular. I grew up in Brussels. I went to high school in Brussels, and I went to university in Brussels, and I still live 12 minutes from the university I went in and 12 minutes from the main office. I always happen to have my, my home based in Brussels, and I'm still based after 24 years of Bain in, uh, in Brussels. Nice. Now, did you know that you wanted to go into business when you left to go to university or went down the street to go to university? <laughs> no, no. I, I went to university because I was curious, studying m many fields. I felt that some of the business schools, the business schools, certainly the one I, I, I went into, offered various cool topics, geography, history, business, languages, etc. I was interested by the variety of courses. I had no idea I would finish in a, in a proper business like Bain. Now, I know that when you went in to university, you were thinking about doing business, but I also know that early on, you might have known that you wanted to be a consultant. This is something that my mother reminded me quite recently, actually. It, it seems like when I was a, a child, when I was seven, eight, nine, or 10, People were starting to, uh, you know, or adults can be with kids sometimes. They, uh, they were asking me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And it seems like I said, would it be great if people would just call me on the phone to ask my advice? And I, I re my, my mother laughed about it because she said, isn't that exactly what you're doing? And I, I had to laugh at it. And, and I think it is the most candid definition of being a consultant is being called for advice. <laughs> so maybe maybe I wanted to do that all my life. It's just that when I was 18, I seemed to have forgotten about that seven-year-old uh, dream. Just because you forgot about it doesn't mean the dream wasn't still there. When you left university, did you go into business directly? Did you want to do research? What was your, what was your plan coming out of school? The plan was I hesitated. There was a part of me that wanted to do research, get deeper into some topics. At university, I had studied quite a bit the link between human rights and business, more importantly, globalization, and how you can globalize businesses while making sure that uh, there is a certain level of respect for human rights, child labor, union rights, etc. I joined Bain because I figured that I would have more impact as a consultant advising multiple businesses than doing five, six, seven, eight, ten years of research on one single topic for one single organization. Now, when you joined Bain, did you 
focus in a particular area. I know back then we were doing social impact work as we've always done, but it wasn't really an area of focus or ESG was an area of focus. So where did you spend your time as a consultant? When I joined Bain, I had no particular direction and I was staffed on various levels of industries. I had uh, experience in financial services and telecom. I somehow figured that it was important to get the basics of the job regardless of the industry. My first passion was around a client in a particular sector in consumer products. I met clients there that were working with an organization that, has a, that had a huge purpose. And from the second year onwards of my career, following these clients, uh, working with a high purpose organization like Mars was my initial career direction. I followed clients for years. Some of them are still my clients now. And I've always, in my 24 years of consulting, did uh, always done a couple of projects for Mars every year. What part of the business were you focused in? Were you thinking about strategy? Were you thinking about operations? Were you thinking about org? I guess over so long, you probably touch a little bit of everything. When I look back at my 24 years and certainly the first years, what I'm very happy happened, that it was maybe half chance, half by, by design, is that I got to work with incredibly talented people in a very purposeful principle-based organization that is Mars, but across a wide range of topics. To be clear, Keith, if you want to be able to advise CEOs on ESG, you need to understand the basics of strategy, the basics of operating model and organization. Talents, you need to understand supply chain, obviously, in ESG. Otherwise, you, you, you can't do anything. So I, I'm, gr I'm grateful that I had the experience of the 360 degrees of, of what a CEO worries about or, or, or wants to work on. On the strength of that experience and the breadth of that experience, you also took on a leadership role inside of Bain in the consumer products practice. Can you talk a little bit about that and what your what your role actually was and how that helped drive the business for Bain? Yeah, I don't want to focus on the podcast to think that it's somehow a very theoretical role. What, what you do uh, at Bain is you, you, you develop relationship with one client, these clients refer you to other clients or, or leave a particular company and join another company. You get to then work with four or five companies at a fairly senior level. And at some point, uh, Bain asks you for a number of years to coordinate the actions of Bain in a particular sector. For me, it was consumer products. I did this at regional level and then at global level for four years in EMEA and four years globally. And I think, Keith, it was very exciting because you do your own work with your own clients. But over time, you feel equally energized, and I would even say even more energized to try to help people who are on their own journey with their own clients and try to inspire them to be maybe more daring, maybe more ambitious. I've had as much energy as doing my own stuff with my own clients or the clients with my teams as I've, I've done helping others with their own clients. We've had Domenico on the podcast talking about servant leadership at Bain, and we've had several other servant leaders talk about Bain. Is that is that the mindset that you have to have when you're when you're leading a practice area or part of the business? Yes, I really found that this notion of servant leadership really embodies how we look at these jobs at Bain. Because first, the most important job at Bain is being the consultant on the case or being the partner on the case and serving clients. So anything else than working on projects, serving clients on ESG, but also on other things, is the most important role at Bain. Anything else, like coordinating a practice, 
is servant leader, i.e. temporary coordination roles. But, but what I like in this title is at the service of the people who serve the clients, and it doesn't include any heavy word like boss or COO or anything that conveys being the boss and having authority. So you talk about your servant leadership in the practice leadership roles. You know, from that perspective, what types of challenges were you seeing the clients facing and how did that evolve over your leadership of the practice area? Because a lot of the issues clients are facing now didn't exist 10 years ago, didn't exist 20 years ago, but you were sort of, from an ESG perspective, arguably at the front end of a transformation of the global business climate. It's very difficult, Keith, to summarize that. But if I had to, I think there are a number of issues that transcend time. And I feel that CEOs today have the same questions as when I started 20 years ago when it comes to strategy in uncertainty. How do I navigate allocating resources when I don't know the future because nobody knows the future? How do I organize my team? How do I make the best use of the talents? How do I get a diverse team working well together? It feels like these give have in their essence, not change. This is why I see also another amazing 20 years for management consulting is that I think some questions candidly don't change. Of course, if you look at the type of other questions we are dealing with 10 years ago, it was digital, it was technology, it was artificial intelligence. And now, and it started in certain industries already five years ago, but we have really seen this peak over the last two ESG concerns, i.e. the move from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, the move to care as much about communities as about returns, is really paramount in what's on the mind of CEOs. At one point, it was all about the shareholders. Now it's really about the stakeholders, which includes your customers, which includes your investors, which includes everybody involved in the organization. That's part of, of what I'm doing now, is that there is dissonance in what you want to do as a company and what your stakeholders are asking for you. I mean, the, the, the consumers tell you they want you to have much more sustainable products, but and they say they want to pay for it. When you look at what they do, they are not all paying for it. Your employees right. are all, especially the young generation, asking you to do way more. But they don't necessarily articulate how you reconcile your business objective, your growth objective, and your sustainability objectives. The investors are also struggling, maybe more than anybody, to weigh results, returns, and ESG dimensions. And I'm excited on behalf of the folks listening to this podcast, the 25, 28-year-old MBA student that will have in his or her career to, to solve this apparent paradox of ROI and ESG metrics. I know that you end up seeing the ESG issues through your practice leadership role, but I also know there were a couple of moments in your career and in your journey that really sparked your interest in ESG outside of necessarily the client work that you were doing. You want to talk a little bit about those? Because I think people sometimes hear people running parts of an organization or part of a business and just assume that it just seemed like a good career move. But I think for you, it runs a little bit deeper than that. No, especially in companies like Bain, you get asked to do stuff where people feel passion. And I think a lot of folks on this podcast will relate to that is you, you, you get opportunities where people feel you are passionate. For me, there were a couple of moments in my life where ESG mattered more than anything else. The, the earliest, when I turned 15, I was literally sat down by my grandmother and she told me, you're going to high school now. Can, can I just tell you, I, I have not been able to. And the story of my grandmother, she's, she was called Yvette, 
is very moving because the teachers came to our house and explained to my great-grandparents. My great-grandfather was a mechanic and my great-grandmother was building bricks for walls since she was six, so, she, so they were manual workers, both of them. And uh, the teacher came and said, I think Yvette is tremendously intelligent. I think she should go to high school and even with the potential to go to university. I would love for both of you to consider this. I know it's going to take a financial effort, but I would love you to think about it. They, they slept over it. They discussed it apparently late at nine. And the next morning, they came to my grandmother, Yvette, and said, this is not going to happen. We don't have the money. We don't think that girls necessarily should do that. You should go to work. And I would love to tell you the story that Yvette at the end finds a magical way to go back to university. But no, she started to work when she was 15. And the sit down was really about, can you realize, Francois, that I, that I was not given the choice and I will forever regret not having had access to higher education? Why am I telling you that story is that my KPI, we all have KPIs that we work with our brain. We also have a couple of things we want to do with our heart. My KPIs is I want, through my work at Bain and some of the work I do privately with NGOs, I want to help as many new events. And I know events now are, are maybe uh, equally uh, in the US, in, in Europe, but also in India and China. I want to help events getting access to higher education. Because I would like the, the event next week, let's say in India, when given the choice to go at university or have access to higher education, to have the means and the freedom to take the right turn that my grandmother couldn't. This is the first time in my life I made ESG an absolute priority. Yeah, and, and I don't think people realize that those issues still exist today. This isn't something that your grandmother faced, you know, decades ago. This is something that plenty of people around the world are facing every day in their lives. I feel very strongly that the access to higher education is improving, but the, the more it improves, the more we feel bad about all the opportunities people don't get, right, uh, Keith? So I think there are thousands and millions of Yvette out there that could, that could use the help. That was my first moment with the heart. I told you already, my second moment was I went 22 and in the last year at university, like in every university, they, 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 they let you pick a topic. And I realized that the topic that, that moved me the most was the link between human rights and global trade. At that time, there was a, a, under the WTO, the World Trade Organization, a huge movement to uh, get down barriers for commerce, for, for international trade. And we've moved into a global trade, as everybody knows. The problem was that there was no real clarity on the rules of what is good commerce, what is bad commerce, what is good competitive advantage and what is bad competitive advantage. And I spent my last year at university studying the minimum rules of human rights, respect for human rights that, that we had to put as part of the global trade. It was very interesting because I realized it was not that simple. I think I started the year by saying, of course, no child labor could be involved into anything related to global trade, I realized that in certain countries, controlled child labor combined with very good education is better than banning child labor and having children work in the non-authorized sectors of the economy. So I, I learned that, sorry, I'm going into details in that because for me, it was the year where I learned that all these ESG issues are more global, more systemic, and usually more complicated than what they look like from the outset. The last moment, so my first moment was my grandmother, Yvette. The second moment was my last year at university. The third moment was five years ago. I was doing a, a keynote speech 
as the, the leader of our consumer business, and I was going to talk about the struggle between consumer goods company and retailers. And right. the person before me was from a business consortium that was talking about ESG, and he showed, I remember, a chart that, that, that was built the following way. He was starting with the total value of the global food system, $10 trillion. The number is not very important. But then he started to calculate the cost to humanity of running this food system. And he had three buckets. A first cost on health, either people eating too much or people being underfed in some regions of the world. The second bucket was about the ecological cost of the food system, biodiversity and greenhouse gas emission. And the third bucket was underpaid people in agriculture and food waste. The net net effect of that was that he proved quantitatively that the global food system was destroying value for humanity. And to me, it was really a moment because I had done so much work in food and consumer products, trying to push this system harder that I had missed the fact that it had so many externalities. And why was that the moment is that, you know, this food system is successfully feeding five to six billion people, but we know that in the next 20 years, Keith, we'll need to feed 10 billion people. So we'll need to push that system harder. Without sounding too dramatic, it changed quite a bit the way I'm looking now at, at project with my clients because I'm adding systematically a layer of externalities and negative impact when I think about growth and when I think about driving business results further. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because you, you said that the value of the food system is $10 trillion. But when you factor in all the externalities and downside of the way the food system works today, you're actually saying that it costs humanity more than $10 trillion to actually produce the $10 trillion in, in food and, and the food system? Correct, because the, the impact on health, people just not eating the right things, the impact of health of the pollutant that you put to push some agricultural system far beyond what they should do naturally, the huge impact of agriculture on uh, biodiversity, water, and greenhouse gas emission, because you know or you don't know, but agriculture is responsible for over two-thirds of the drops in biodiversity and a good 25% of greenhouse gas emission. And if you account on top of that, the number of folks, the poorest folks on earth, depend on agriculture as a way of living. It's intuitive for everybody. And very often, they are quite significantly underpaid versus uh, the usual living standard. This total cost makes it net negative. It doesn't mean that every company in that sector is net negative. It doesn't mean that it's bad because the food system is also critical to have evolving population, nourishing people. So I, I didn't take this math as a reason to stop working with, the, with, with these agricultural or food companies. But it's a real case for change, in my view, that these companies need to embrace a much more aggressive ESG agenda going forward. It's where I, I, I feel that this is why I'm so proud of what we are doing at Bain at the moment is we all need a fair amount of upskilling to grasp this issue, Keith. If you look at the people who are underfed or the poorest of the poor, these are actually improving over time. The food system is, is actually improving the way even the poorest are fed. It's just not enough. <laughs> and we need to do a, a lot more. And if we need to feed 10 million people, we'd better to think twice about how we set up agriculture, what we grow and what we don't grow. I'll leave you with one more thing that really was a, a, another moment for me, is that a lot of people talk about targets for 2030 to start moving 
the way humanity performs on ESG to get to 2050, significant progress to net zero. When you think about that in agricultural term, Keith, it's six or seven crops. So if you are not planting this year, what is going to drive better results or changing the composition of your soil this year, you're down to six crops. And if it's not happening next year, it's five crops. And putting that in agricultural terms makes it a lot more, for me, concrete and literally down to earth than some theoretical slides about projections. Now, you take all of this passion and background and moments in your career and your journey, and you end up as Bain's first head of ESG. How did that opportunity come about? And was it something that was an easy decision for you to, to take on that leadership role? The decision was easy because when, when you have a personal passion for, for these things, it's easy. And you know, Keith, it's important for folks on this podcast to hear it. I'm not abandoning my client. At Bain, when you do servant leadership roles, you keep client relationships. So to be specific, my role is 50% internal, but 50% external. I, I accepted that in a heartbeat. And I think they created this role because Bain has been a pioneer. I can talk more about that in this field for, for, for years, for over a decade. But we felt that ESG was becoming so high on CEO's agenda that we needed to get more organized around how to combine the pioneering work we had done on, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, the pioneering work we, we had done with NGOs around social impact, and some of the emerging work we were doing on sustainability across the world. And my job is to coordinate that and more importantly, scale that to make sure that literally all our teams and all our client conversations include those of ESG. Francois, I want to take you up on your offer to go a little bit deeper into the work that we're doing in ESG. And you mentioned a minute ago some of the things that Bain has done as a pioneer in the space. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, I know from my own experience at Bain, you know, thinking about being carbon neutral and the other investments we're making, you know, people weren't doing those things at the time that we started doing them. Why don't you share a little bit for the listeners a little bit more detail about the pioneering stuff that we've been doing? It's a source of pride for, I know, for me, for you, but a lot of the Bainese is that Bain has been one of, one of the first companies and certainly the first consulting company to go for net zero carbon neutrality. We've offset our flights and our office emissions for over 10 years, and we have a lot of experience in doing that. And what we are doing at the moment, Keith, is raising the bar on what we are doing on carbon. We are not only offsetting our carbon emissions now, we are going to go to actually remove the carbon we are emitting by actively, for example, planting tree or investing in technologies that remove carbon. So Bain has been a pioneer on, call it carbon or impact on climate change. I'm also very proud of what we've done on what we call the social impact area. We have committed, I think it's six years ago, and we now have four years to go over 10 years to spend over 1.1 billion of our fees on projects that have direct impacts on community. And this is something we are tracking as aggressively and diligently as some of the usual cost and revenue we are tracking for our business. 
And we'll have Julie Kaufman on the podcast to talk about some of the work we're doing in DEI, which when you said 1.1 billion, that 0.1 was added last year around racial equity and social justice, sort of the fourth pillar of our social impact practice alongside environment, education, and economic development. Now, granted, in those first three pillars, education, environment, and economic development, we were also doing a lot of work to impact and benefit marginalized communities around the world. But can you talk a little bit about some of the priority clients and some of the work that we've done in our ESG practices around the system? I'm glad you're going to talk to, to Julie because Julie has been pioneering this. It started, I, I think, more on the gender diversity and evolved over time to be a full diversity, equity and inclusion agenda. And you mentioned, Keith, the extraordinary effort two years ago to commit more money against racial equity, obviously starting uh, in, in the U.S., we are working on ESG with an incredibly diverse set of clients. I think my objective is to put an ESG conversation in 100% of the projects we are doing. What gets me most exciting this month is that there is a chance that by 1st of July, all of our due diligences within private equity will include a set of analysis on ESG performance of the target company. That's 100% of due diligence run by Bain. And I know everybody on this podcast is not necessarily equally interested in private equity, but to know that within a good first career at Bain, two to three years, you'll all know that you'll do a couple of due diligences, knowing that you'll do that anyway, I, I think is, is my responsibility to the business. And for people that want to hear a, a deeper example of some of the work that we're doing, we're going to have Sasha Dusnowski on the podcast as well, talking about some of the great work that he's doing in agriculture around the system. I want to ask you about your top three priorities sort of leading ESG. I think you touched on a couple of them already, but as you look over the next several years for Bain, what are the things that you want to make sure we get absolutely right and invest behind? Yeah, I, I think that they are clear, at, le at least to me at the moment. The first priority is to put ESG in everything we do. I think Sam is going to talk uh, about what we do internally at Bain to improve Bain's footprint. But I think the largest impact Bain can have is if it drives an ESG agenda within all of its clients' missions, projects. My hope is that we are going to start with strategy, the core business of Bain, due diligence, that we do a lot with a lot of projects, and supply chain. Because my assessment is that if you start with these three, you get the 80-20 of how you drive immediate impact. But the goal is certain. I want to guarantee that 100% of the Bain cases have a dimension of ESG. Why? Because I want to be able to stare at any new joiners at Bain and commit that they will have, as part of their Bain, phenomenal impact on businesses and on communities. That's job number one. Job number two is, on top of putting that in the core strategy, supply chain, due diligence, organization, we need to build bespoke ESG product. Because there are some parts of the ESG agenda that require specific skills and expertise. Decarbonization, building a diverse management team or a diverse company. Things that take specific analysis and specific expertise. And my commitment is to build on a series of priority uh, capabilities, muscles. The specificity is I'm not going to build it only within Bain because I think it's a, it's a lack of humility and probably a candid lack of realism to think that Bain & Company alone can acquire all these capabilities. So we are partnering with the best of breed partners, some companies like Persephone on carbon, but some universities to make sure we have an ecosystem that can help our clients with the capabilities they need. 
The last one is internal. And you know, Keith, we all have our pet projects. This is my pet project. I, I've been teaching at university for 10 years. This gives me a lot of personal energy. I meet students all year long. My plan is to offer to every of the 15,000 Beni an upskilling journey on ESG. Why? Because I feel, as I told you already, that these issues are complicated, systemic, global, and that on every one of them, we all need a little upskilling. The view on, on carbon is evolving every year. The science is moving every day on biodiversity and how you protect and measure biodiversity. If we don't go back to school, we will never be capable to inspire and, and advise our clients. And so in every single Bain office, we are talking with local universities to offer every Baini a fair amount of upskilling. I'm talking now 25, 30 hours a year, at least for the ones who are interested. And what I commit to do is by year end, we'll have a continuous learning program on ESG that we will be av available to everybody. So one of the things I wanted to ask you as we start to wrap up is on that note, because a lot of people listening are torn between pursuing ESG goals to sort of make their communities, make their country, make the world a better place and going into corporate. And there's historically been this tension for people who, you know, want to do something to benefit society. And they always put that at odds with doing something corporate and, and trying to go the corporate route or the investment route in private equity or venture capital. It sounds like you don't necessarily see those as, as conflicting, but actually part of a complementary answer that will, will improve the world for everybody. Is that a fair way of describing it? And what advice would you give to people who are trying to make that trade-off today with their career path? No, I think this is a real trade-off. And I, I don't want to minimize it, Keith, because I think it was on my mind when I was 22. And I'm sure that it was if I was 22, 25, or 28 today, it would be on my mind. I think that the way I think about it is that companies have a phenomenally important role to play as driver of change in the world. It's my belief that you need companies and governments and NGOs to work together. But I, I, my belief is that companies will have super high impact because of their direct relationship with governments, investors, etc. but their ability to influence consumers. And it's going to sound like a bit of a bay advertising, but it's, it's not. It's a profound belief is I believe that if you want to have impact on the world, we can at Bain guarantee that you will learn how business work on organization, on strategy, on supply chain, and that you will be able to influence CEOs and deciders, including on ESG and impact of communities with a scale that you will not necessarily find in a single corporation, because in a single corporation, you might end up in a specific department with lower priorities, or in an NGO because of the scale of the impact. Of course, I would ask everybody on this podcast to also consider alternatives, but I do feel that Bain has an impact to learning ratio that is spectacular for folks who are considering a first career move here. That is very well said. Francois, I wanna thank you for your time today. We've known each other for quite a long time, and thanks for all the work that you're doing to lead us in ESG, and I look forward to many great things to come. Thank you, Keith. It was a pleasure. And I wish everybody on this podcast good luck. <laughs>